0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll meet a young man from West Virginia's Lebanese community who says he's determined to preserve its long-running traditions, including making signature homemade dishes like kibbeh and tabbouleh.
1: When you walk into the restaurant, you're gonna think you're in downtown Beirut.
0: And we'll travel down to the Black River in North Carolina, where scientists have discovered one of the oldest trees in the world.
2: What did someone call it? The the Sistine Chapel of the Cypress Swamps? And it is.
0: And we'll also hear how cuts to minor league baseball teams are affecting communities in Appalachia.
2: It's harder to swallow when, when
3: you look at how there is now a large gaping hole in this region of the country that has been expelled from the major
2: league, minor league system.
0: These stories and more this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Just over a century ago, a wave of Lebanese immigrants flowed into Appalachia. They'd left their homes and families in the Middle East and traveled to regional cities like Pittsburgh, Roanoke, and Wheeling in search of jobs and economic opportunity. They brought with them a rich culture that flourished and brought vitality to the places they settled. But now, generations have passed and Appalachia's Lebanese communities are seeing a familiar dynamic as young people move out and older generations pass on. In Wheeling, West Virginia, one young man is determined to reverse this trend. He's committed to preserving Lebanese food traditions and energizing a new generation. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett brings us this story.
3: In a church basement in Wheeling, West Virginia, volunteers gather in the kitchen, serving food and sharing fellowship. It's mostly women in the kitchen, and they're older, but there's a young man there too. He wears a black t shirt with a tree printed on it. A Cedar of Lebanon. Oh, one
1: one, one. Me, pa.
3: Dalton Pass is twenty five years old, and though he looks out of place, Dalton has known these women for a while.
1: I've been watching Them cook and bake in this church my whole life.
3: This is Our Lady of Lebanon. It's a Maronite church, the only one in West Virginia. Maronites are Catholics that adhere to an Eastern branch originating in Lebanon and Syria. In parts of their mass, Maronites still use Aramaic, the language of Jesus. Maronite immigrants came to West Virginia around the turn of the 19th century, seeking economic opportunity and refuge from religious persecution in Lebanon. With them, they brought rich traditions of food, faith, and community.
1: So, I mean, you had the women cooking every month. You had dinners and Hufflies, Hufflies in, in Lebanon is a major celebration at dinner.
3: At its peak, there were over 300 Maronites in Wheeling. But today, the congregation is small. And the majority is elderly. Older generations are passing on, and the younger people are moving away.
1: I'm the one that that stayed, the lone wolf that stayed. Lord, have mercy. Remember, Lord, your people here before you, especially those who have these offerings. Forgive them to so be always
3: live plainless lives. Dalton is third generation Lebanese. He began serving on the altar at Our Lady of Lebanon when he was just eight years old. Today, he's one of the few servers still left.
1: Um, we had older servers, but they would pass away or, you know, the younger kids would grow up and go to college and they move away. So,
3: But Dalton says for him, it was different. He fell in love with the culture and traditions of Lebanon in his preteen years. He started to practice Lebanese dance and teach himself Arabic. Around that time, he started cooking. Dalton says food plays an important role in Maronite religion.
1: We put a cross in our dough because we think that's the only way it's going to rise is if it's blessed with a cross.
3: Traditional foods reflect the long periods of fasting that are part of the religion.
1: So you know, fish, tobole is a main dish, the hummus, things like that, those dishes play a major role because that is our substance for 43 days for us.
3: Dalton learned to cook from the women of the church. They would make food for bake sales, church dinners, and the annual festival fundraiser.
1: You know, I watched uh, one of the main ladies here, Linda Duffy. She does the main mixing of the kibbeh for us.
3: Kibbeh is the national dish in Lebanon. It's made with ground meat, onions, spices, and bulgur wheat, all mixed together and topped with pine nuts.
1: I always like to be there, too, because then I can taste it and make sure it's good for her.
3: Hello. Hello. It's Clara. That's me. Yep. <laughs> That's Linda Fadul Duffy. Linda is second-generation Lebanese, and her family used to own a Lebanese bakery in Wheeling.
4: And it was in, in business for over 50 years, you know, and it was very, very popular.
3: They served dishes like hummus, tabbouleh, and stuffed grape
4: leaves. They had a luncheon crowd. Their tables were always filled at lunchtime.
3: The bakery closed its doors in 2017, much to the disappointment of the community, both Lebanese and non Lebanese alike.
4: Every time I go somewhere, people say, I miss the bakery. I miss the bakery. I says, well, we all do.
3: Linda still regularly cooks for church events at Our Lady of Lebanon. But she worries future generations won't be able to carry on these traditions.
4: Now, I think Dalton's probably the only one, because we don't have too many young people in our parish.
3: With the bakery closed and the congregation shrinking, Dalton knew that something had to be done.
1: I heard people complain and complain and complain. And you can only hear her complain so much and not do anything until, you know, you actually have to do something.
3: Dalton plans to open a Lebanese restaurant and bakery in downtown Wheeling. He says it'll be more than just a restaurant; it'll be a cultural experience.
1: When you walk into the restaurant, you're gonna think you're in downtown Beirut.
3: He plans to have live music, belly dancers on the weekends, and serve authentic platters of Lebanese food.
1: It'll have a full bar. It will have a dance floor, uh, a stage for bands, lower lighting that, like, Moroccan cage look.
3: Monsignor Bajos is the pastor at Our Lady of Lebanon. He says he's thankful younger generations are preserving these traditions.
5: They pick up from their mothers and grandmothers. And, you know, they, we, we are pushing as much as we can.
3: Monsignor says the church in Wheeling is unique. And the people there, they feel a pull back to their culture, back to the faith, and back to the food.
5: They have, I call them, nostalgia. They have nostalgia to their childhood uh, with their grandmas, with their grandpas.
3: He says even though most in the congregation have forgotten the Arabic language, they've held on to a few words.
5: They know kibbit, abouli, hamas, meat pie. They know the names of the food. In this community here, in comparison with other communities in the United States, that this community have roots.
3: Dalton says he's committed to bringing his community back to these roots, before it's too late.
1: In 10 years, who's going to do all the cooking? Dalton and Monsignor? Dalton and and one of the women who's still here? It can't be, it's impossible.
3: Dalton hopes to offer more activities at the church, so more kids can get involved.
1: We are trying to bring back Arabic lessons, um, which we should be starting here soon. We're doing dance lessons. We we cook, you know, so we, we teach the younger people to cook.
3: In the meantime, Dalton is planning the opening of a Lebanese food truck in Wheeling, while he continues to search for a permanent home for the restaurant. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett.
0: Clara is part of our Folkways Reporting Corps food has the power to connect us to past generations sometimes hundreds of years worth of history even as our traditions change and our communities evolve food can help us keep a piece of our traditions alive but what happens when the food at the center of that tradition is wiped out that's what happened to the american chestnut which was not just an important ingredient in a variety of dishes but was also used as livestock feed and by woodworkers Maybe, like me, you've heard stories about what things used to be like hundreds of years ago when massively large chestnut trees used to grow in abundance. It's just really incredible to imagine what that must have looked like. In the early 1900s, though, American chestnuts were devastated by a blight that took down some four billion of these giants. Now, researchers are moving forward with a genetically engineered tree that allows chestnuts to survive the blight. But this technique is controversial. As the Allegheny Front's Julie Grant reports.
6: Mike Ockett has been spending a lot of time in the woods this fall.
7: Here I am in the Allegheny National Forest. The
6: retired scientist walks over the rocky soil. It's covered with low bush blueberries.
7: And this is the kind of place where you tend to find remnant surviving Americans.
6: American chestnuts were once common here. They were some of the largest, fastest growing and useful trees. The wood was rot resistant and used in everything from cradles to coffins. The nuts inspired holiday songs and fed wildlife and people. When American chestnuts succumbed to the blight, at least five species of insect went extinct. American chestnuts still grow in the forest. Ockett finds one that two years ago produced nuts, but the top of the tree now looks dead.
7: That shows that uh, the blight is, is getting into
6: it. What people call the blight is a fungus that was brought to the U.S. when chestnut trees were first imported from China and Japan. The fungus produces an acid in the tree, and while Asian varieties are adapted to fight it off, the acid creates a lethal canker on American chestnuts. People who want to see a tower in the eastern forests again have faced decades of disappointment. The roots continue to sprout and start to grow.
8: And as it grows, it'll get the blight again. get killed down again. And it's stuck in this cycle. Eventually, the roots run out of energy and the whole tree dies.
6: William Powell has been working to restore the American chestnut at the State University of New York in Syracuse for 35 years. He says people have been trying for much longer than that to make a hybrid chestnut that's resistant to the blight.
8: I've seen papers all the way back to the 1920s and, you know, hybridizing it with um, the Japanese chestnut, the Chinese chestnut, trying to make blight-resistant trees, But no success. None of them have been successful getting it back out into the wild.
6: So Powell and his colleagues turned to genetic engineering. People have heard of GMO corn and soy. Well, these researchers figured out that a gene in the wheat plant enhances resistance to the fungus that causes the blight. So they've added that gene to the cells of the American chestnut.
8: And the gene makes an enzyme that actually detoxifies the acid that the fungus throws at the plant. And by giving the tree the ability to make this enzyme, you basically take away or neutralize the weapon of the fungus, and therefore the fungus and the tree can coexist.
6: Powell and his team have successfully grown test plots of genetically engineered American chestnuts in New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Currently, these GMO trees are federally regulated and are required to be cut before they flower. Powell has petitioned the USDA to deregulate the trees so they can mature and reproduce. He says so far the process has taken five years, much longer than he anticipated.
8: I get emails all the time; people wanting these trees. You know, they want to plant them on their property, and I just have to keep telling them, "Well, once we get through the process, then you'll be able to get to these trees."
9: It's just so reckless. What's the rush?
6: This is Ann Peterman, director of the Global Justice Ecology Project, which has developed a coalition of hundreds of groups worldwide opposed to genetically engineered trees. Other GMO trees have been developed for commercial production, like freeze-tolerant eucalyptus for biofuels that could survive in the southeastern U.S., and a poplar tree in China genetically altered for insect resistance. Peterman says the GMO American chestnut is designed not for farms, but to spread through forests. She worries this could have unintended consequences for the ecosystem.
9: It would be the first GMO plant in the world to be released with the intention of spreading in the wild. So how will that work out over time? What will be the impact on the future generations of these genetically engineered trees? Again, no one knows.
6: Ann Peterman worries that GMO American chestnut could be a Trojan horse, the first GMO tree approved in the U.S. That precedent, of course, then makes it a lot easier to get other genetically engineered trees approved. Sarah Fitzsimmons disagrees.
9: People saying this is a rubber stamp for other species, it's not.
6: She's director of restoration for the American Chestnut Foundation and is a research technologist at Penn State.
9: You know, the USDA takes two or more years for every application to carefully consider all the consequences of a decision that it makes.
6: The foundation plants hybrids through the eastern U.S., including Pennsylvania, but Fitzsimmons says it's not been enough to restore the trees. So they support the genetically engineered, also called transgenic, American chestnut.
9: I am not of the opinion that transgenic American chestnuts are going to save and restore the species on its own, but it is an incredibly important tool you know, not just for American chestnut, but for other native species.
6: But some Native American groups oppose that. Their ancestors used the chestnut's bark to build longhouses, the leaves for medicine, and the nuts for flower. B.J. McManama of the Indigenous Environmental Network believes genetic engineering is just another example of humans trying to dominate nature.
8: We need to leave the forest alone as much as possible. The forest will recover These ecosystems will recover if we quit taking things from these forests that we absolutely do not need.
6: Back at the Allegheny National Forest, chestnut enthusiast Mike Alcott sees it differently.
7: If we don't act responsibly using the best tools that we have, things are going to get worse. They're not going to get better if we just let nature take its course, because I think the days of doing that, unfortunately, are over.
6: The proposal to deregulate the genetically engineered American chestnut will need approvals not only from USDA, but other federal agencies. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant.
0: The chestnut blight happened over 100 years ago. That plus widespread over-harvesting wiped out almost all of Appalachia's old-growth forests. But then, in the 1930s, something changed. When President Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office amid the Great Depression, he was facing record unemployment and depleted natural resources. In response, FDR established the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC. Known as Roosevelt's Tree Army, it employed more than 3 million men and created thousands of parks across the country. Now, some are calling for a modern version of the CCC. The Allegheny Front's Andy Kubis has the story.
10: Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps was part of his new deal, and it had two goals, save the environment and get people back to work.
11: Depression was terrible. Terrible, terrible.
10: John Livingood grew up in Somerset, Pennsylvania. He joined the CCC when he was 18 and worked at the camp that would become Laurel Hill State Park in southwestern Pennsylvania. Livingood died in 2015, but his memories were recorded by park staff in 2005.
11: This was all opportunities as far as we were concerned. Especially me, it was my first opportunity to make a big step in life. And every one of us Civilian Conservation Corps men were very proud of her work. We knew it was here to stay.
10: As part of Roosevelt's tree army, Living Good was issued work gloves and two uniforms. He worked eight hours a day and was paid $30 a month to plant trees, cut miles of trails, and help build the dam on a lake that was another CCC project.
4: So here we are at Cooser Lake. It was originally built by the CCC as
10: an earth and log lake. Ashley Berry is standing on the beach looking out over the four acres of water, now covered in leaves. She's an environmental educator here at the Laurel Hills State Park Complex.
4: When the CCC had constructed it, it was primarily used for fishing and swimming, they had also constructed a road that wraps the entire way around the lake, which we can still see today.
10: Barry says swimming is no longer allowed here because of algae, but it's a perfect picnic spot. It wasn't so picturesque when the first CCC boys arrived on June 10, 1933.
4: This land was completely barren. There were no trees. There was no lake, uh, maybe a trickle of a stream running through here. But really, it was just a wasteland, nothing like what we experience today.
10: In the late 1800s and early 1900s, logging and mining companies swept through this area, clear-cutting most of the land. The CCC boys were sent in to reforest the whole area.
4: They planted trees and shrubs. They did a lot of soil erosion work and fire control, flood control, things like that. They really worked to restore the natural resources that had been so severely depleted. And nationwide, they employed 3 million men and planted over 3 billion trees. Well, that's a lot of trees. It's a lot of trees. <laughs> they were actually responsible for um, more than 50% of the reforestation across the country.
10: The men also built the iconic CCC cabins, known for their simple but sturdy construction, using rough-hewn timber and stones they collected nearby. You can still stay in them today. The value of the work completed by the CCC nationwide is estimated at $8 billion. During the Civilian Conservation Corps era from 1933 to 1942, close to 200,000 Pennsylvanians served in camps nationwide. Now some congressional Democrats are talking about a resurgence of the program to tackle both unemployment and environmental issues. Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania is one of them.
12: I think it's not only a great idea, it's it's a, an idea whose time has come. Frankly, it's an idea whose urgency is upon us, maybe even without the pandemic, but ever more so in the aftermath of the pandemic.
10: Senator Casey is currently drafting legislation for a 21st century Civilian Conservation Corps that he's planning to introduce soon. On a recent Zoom call with partner organizations, he spoke about the three major crises facing the country right now, unemployment, the economy and the climate. Casey thinks there's potential for bipartisan support and says the time is right for federal action.
12: I can hear the howls from some in Washington saying, oh my goodness, you mean you're going to use federal dollars to hire people? And I say, damn right, got to do it. There's no way we can wait for some package of incentives to you know, kickstart a full, robust
13: recovery.
10: In Pennsylvania, there have been other programs modeled after the CCC. But what Casey is proposing is much more ambitious. In addition to conservation work, his proposal would provide CCC labor to help farmers adopt regenerative agriculture practices, which improve soil and increase resilience to climate change. And unlike the original program, which was segregated, the new version would be open to people of all ages and backgrounds, and workers would get a living wage. A new report from Reimagine Appalachia, a coalition of groups working on sustainable development, shows that reviving the Civilian Conservation Corps could create nearly 100,000 jobs in Ohio and Pennsylvania alone and absorb up to 20 percent of regional carbon emissions by planting trees and teaching new farming techniques.
6: This pandemic has pushed people into the outdoors in ways that we've never seen before. Jacqueline Bonomo is the CEO of
10: Penn Future, a statewide environmental group that's part of the coalition. She points out that visits to Pennsylvania's parks increased by more than 7 million since the pandemic started. But the increased use has taken a toll.
6: These places have already been saddled with a billion-dollar maintenance and infrastructure backlog, and so it's really important that these past investments be protected. Bonomo says
10: a reimagined CCC could put people back to work addressing any number of infrastructure and maintenance problems, like improving water quality. A modern-day CCC could help by planting buffers along streams and removing invasive species. Does that fireplace still work? Back at Cooser State Park, Ashley Berry has a wish list of projects a new tree army could work on. All the extra visitors since the pandemic began have worn down the trails and damaged new growth. She stops at the Mighty Oak Pavilion, built by the CCC boys 87 years ago. Look at that. It is absolutely gorgeous. The Stone and Wood Pavilion is nestled back in the woods, just off of the Tree Army Trail. It blends in perfectly with the natural setting. It's supported by what looks like whole tree trunks. Barry says it's hard to believe it was made with simple tools and materials found nearby.
4: For some boys who had so very little, they truly did so very much for us. Uh, We can see that in all of our state parks across Pennsylvania, the legacy that they left behind, and I hope that we continue to cherish that.
10: Barry says they're expecting a lot of visitors this winter for snowshoeing and cross-country skiing, and she hopes they will follow the example of stewardship begun by the CCC boys decades ago by respecting and caring for the park. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Andy Kubis.
0: Our next story takes us down out of the mountains to North Carolina's Black River, where scientists have uncovered one of the oldest trees in the world. For years, researchers have been fascinated by swamp in eastern North Carolina, specifically in the trees that grow there. They identified dozens of bald cypress decades ago that they believed were part of an ancient forest. But until now, they weren't sure exactly how long those trees had been living in this remote corner of North Carolina. WUNC's Will Michaels traveled there to learn what scientists have uncovered about the trees that have withstood thousands of years of history.
13: This is the Black River near the town of Ivanhoe, North Carolina. It's an eerily calm, dark river, with the roots of thousands of tall cypress trees popping through the surface of the water like stalagmites in a cave. And it's really in the middle of nowhere.
2: There was just an alligator right here where we're paddling last week when we were out here.
13: Angie Carl manages this part of the river for the Nature Conservancy, an environmental group that recently bought the land around the swamp. So what was this about an alligator? (laughs) Oh,
2: who said that? Me? (laughs) Carl
13: is guiding me to a cypress forest in this coastal blackwater swamp. The water is almost totally still, but it's impossible to see beyond the surface.
2: Yeah, if you were to scoop it up and look at it, it's actually clear.
13: Hmm. And
2: it looks like sweet tea. All, all the um, needles bleach, leaves bleach into the water and turn it a reddish color.
13: Carl has described this peculiar place in southeastern North Carolina as something from a different world. Downriver, the dense, smaller trees open into a clearing, and suddenly, they get much bigger.
2: You can look up now and see ancient tops coming up on the left. And this tree right here, look how big the buttress is when you look up.
13: Carl weaves our kayak through more roots and stops at the bottom of a thick cypress about 60 feet tall, sitting in a few feet of water. If not from a different world, it turns out some of these trees are from a different millennium.
7: Well, we're underneath one of the multi-millennial aged bald cypress trees at Black River, North Carolina.
13: David Staley is a geosciences professor at the University of Arkansas and the lead author of a new study about these trees. Staley used radiocarbon dating, took a core sample, and counted the rings in this tree.
7: It's at least 2,624 years old, so the inner ring is 605 BC, it's amazing.
13: The report published this week in the journal Environmental Research Communications identifies this cypress as the fifth oldest living tree in the world.
7: And he looks old. I mean, he's got busted out canopy, he's re-sprouted smaller limbs to survive. He's got areas where the big heavy branches have been ripped out and soil has accumulated and he has a little garden of geraniums growing out of the side of a busted out hollow.
13: What makes this discovery more surprising is that it's in the wetlands of coastal North Carolina. The oldest trees on record are in places like Nevada, California, and Chile. They're in dry temperate places. But Staley says the cypress can tolerate the harsher conditions of the Carolinas.
7: We think it has to do with this nutrient-poor acidic swamp water conditions. This is Black River North Carolina. The water's the color of tea, so the trees grow slowly and achieve remarkable age. All of those things contribute to the exclusion of most competing tree species.
13: Staley studies trees like these to get a better idea of climate history. Each ring of the tree's core represents a growing season and tiny variations give researchers an estimate of each year's rainfall. That's more than two thousand years of data that can show what is natural when it comes to droughts and floods and how humans are disrupting that.
7: So mankind is now having a detectable effect on the global climate and, and regional climate variability as well. And so we want to put that anthropogenic forcing in a longer term perspective.
2: We start counting the millennial age trees and you can tell which ones they are. Hmm. Yeah. They're all around us.
13: Angie Carl paddles back up river. The Black River is a navigation channel, but it's hard to access and not fully open to the public. Carl says she hopes it will be one day.
2: What did someone call it the, like the Sistine Chapel of the Cypress Swamps? And it is.
13: Except it has about 2,000 years on Michelangelo. Will Michaels, North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.
0: Will originally reported that story in May 2019, just after the article Dr. Stahl published about the North Carolina cypress trees. The cypress tree they mentioned that's over 2,600 years old? It's still alive and one of the oldest living trees in the world. Coming up after a break, the love of baseball attracts fans of all ages, including this guy who's attended almost every minor league game in Charleston, West Virginia.
8: But
0: minor league baseball is contracting and some Appalachian towns are losing their teams. We'll hear the latest on that story after a quick break. You are inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Major League Baseball is eliminating 40 minor league teams, many in smaller communities where it's the only pro sport in town. The announcement sent shockwaves across these communities. These teams are as much a cultural identity as they are an affordable and fun family outing. Dave Mistich takes a look at one team left stranded by the MLB reorganization.
14: On most summer nights, Rod Blackstone can be found behind home plate at Appalachian Power Park in Charleston, West Virginia, riling up the crowd and tossing pieces of toast into the stands after the opposing team's batters strike out. Since the early 90s, he's been coming to games and is known simply as the Toastman. Now Charleston's team may be toast. MLB threw the West Virginia Power a curveball when it announced it was not one of the teams that would be part of the 120-team minor league lineup next season. Three other squads from West Virginia were also thrown out. Of the 42 teams that will lose MLB affiliation, 18 are in the Appalachian region. Blackstone, a.k.a. the Toastman, used to work in politics, but now works for the power. He says the contraction is a disservice to communities like Charleston, which has hosted a minor league team for most seasons, dating back to 1910.
2: It's harder to swallow when when you look at how there is now a large
3: gaping hole in this region of the country uh, that has been expelled from the major league, minor league system.
14: When Major League Baseball announced the reorganization, officials said one of the aims was to cut down on travel times between games and also ensure the facilities are up to date. The ouster still hasn't sunk in for many people. Charleston's Mayor Amy Goodwin says catching games at Appalachian Power Park has always been a go to for families.
11: My kids grew up in that stadium. Uh, my kids know that. that- is something fun for them to do, whether you're a baseball fan or player or not.
14: Goodwin says the community has long rallied around the team in the ballpark, and vice versa.
11: Not only does Charleston have a a long um, and really robust history of baseball, uh, but this stadium and this place uh, brings so much happiness.
14: Local officials are still sorting out what the economic fallout will be. Charleston Convention and Visitors Bureau CEO Tim Brady says it's not just those who work at the stadium who will be affected, it's the hotels where teams stay and the restaurants and bars frequented by fans in the surrounding area.
0: So one small change to a local economy like this, which is really a living organism, affects much broader than just right there within the stadium.
14: The team commissioned the Visitors Bureau to conduct an economic impact study a year ago. It found the power brings in more than $3 million each year. In Charleston, the ballpark wasn't built in a suburb or off an interstate. Brady says it was designed to rejuvenate part of downtown.
0: But in Charleston, a concerted effort was made to build the ballpark in the Warehouse District to help spur development over there, and you've seen that. You've seen bars and restaurants and high-rise apartment buildings spring up around the ballpark.
14: While the owners of the West Virginia Power promised baseball will be back next season, it's unknown what league they'll be a part of. It's almost guaranteed, though, not to be the attraction it has been, at least not without a major league affiliate. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Dave Mistich.
0: Dave originally reported that story for NPR's All Things Considered a couple of weeks ago. (music) Our next story is about an effort to preserve ballads, which are stories put to music and verse. Across Appalachia, there are countless such pieces of music, most of which have been passed down orally, person to person. Catherine Jackson French was a folklorist who worked to document many of the ballads across Kentucky that were disappearing. Her attempt to publish her work, though, failed, partly because she was a woman, and partly due to something called the Ballad Wars. Stephanie Wolfe of WFPL reports that Jackson French's story is finally being told.
15: Katherine Jackson French died in 1958 at the age of 83. She's buried in a cemetery off a busy road in London, Kentucky. Her headstone is a modest rectangular slab.
9: I kind of love this because it almost sums up her life this unobtrusive, small headstone. That's Elizabeth Sabino, Associate Professor of Music at Kentucky's Berea College. Catherine Jackson did remarkable things in her life, but she didn't do it in a very ostentatious way, which I think is part of the reason that no one has really heard of her.
15: Catherine Jackson French became a leader of the American Association of University Women, and she collected some 60 songs from the Kentucky Mountains in 1909.
16: There was- a lord lived in the old country bow down there was a lord lived in the old country
15: these flowers were given to me jackson there, french tried to get her ballad collection published asking berea college for help but it never happened
9: there was this tangle of intrigue of professional jealousies and broken promises and gender role limitations. Had she succeeded, Di says
15: Jackson French would have easily beat out the scholars who did get the credit for this kind of Anglo-American musical fieldwork, like Cecil Sharp. He co-published a major collection of Appalachia Balladry in 1917. DiSavino says other scholars cribbed from Jackson French's research. Then there was this feud that became known as the Ballad Wars, basically an ivory tower squabble between factions of scholars arguing over how ballads got written.
9: What began to happen was that experts on ballads began to gather acolytes and students, and these people vested their own careers in the expertise of the people that they followed. Jackson French was not a part of these inner
15: circles, DiSavino says. Yet what she collected from Kentucky was significant. And she took meticulous notes.
9: She really gives us a picture of what life was like for people of those mountains, both the poverty and also the tremendous communal spirit shared in particular by the women.
15: That was often glossed over in later collections. The communal spirit, the role of women. Jackson French wrote that it was primarily women who kept these ballots. In fact, she dedicated her collection to these women. In Scarlet Town where I was born
16: there was a fair maid dwelling, and every youth cried well a day. Her name
15: was Barbara Allen. DeSavino published a biography on Katherine Jackson French with the help of a hidden treasure trove discovered in an attic in South Carolina boxes of letters and photos that sat unopened for years.
10: Hey, Talbert Buckland is my name, and I'm Katherine
15: Jackson, French's granddaughter. Talbert Buckland says she knew just a bit about her grandmother's work
9: growing up. At one point, my mother said, well, you know, your grandmother collected ballots, and she gave me a little brochure that grandmother had done, and so I think I used that to write a
15: paper. She's grateful her grandmother's story is finally being told. I was in tears reading
10: the book. I think I've read it two or three times, and I need to read it again, because every time I read it, I learn more.
16: <laughs> oh, where have you been to, Lord Randall, my son? Oh, where have you been to, my sweet, pretty one? Over high hills and mountains, mother, make my bed soon, for I'm sick to the...
15: That's Elizabeth De Savino singing a ballad from Catherine Jackson French's collection, included in a two-disc set, released in conjunction with the book.
16: What did you eat for your supper, Lord Randall, my son? What did you eat for your supper, my sweet, pretty one? Fried eels and fresh butter, mother, make my bed soon. For I'm sick to the heart and I want to lie down.
9: I want her contribution to Appalachian music known. I hope people pick up these songs and sing them. Beyond that, I think it's important that we start talking frankly about the fact that our history as we learn it is one of cultural erasure.
15: Berea College is finally fulfilling its promise to Katherine Jackson French, publishing her ballad collection 110 years later. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Wolfe in London,
0: Kentucky. That story originally aired on NPR's All Things Considered. Today, we've heard stories about how people hold on to traditions in a world that's always changing. Whether it's learning the recipes of our ancestors, trying to bring back a heritage tree that was nearly wiped out, or rooting for the home team. A lot of people here have stories that showcase the resilience and grit found in Appalachian families. Nellie Canterbury was born in 1933 in a mountain home above the railroad town of Hinton. She was the fifth of six girls and is the last surviving sister from her family today. In her book, The Visit, she writes about her family, from the time her parents met to when her mother died. Canterbury, or Aunt Nellie, as she prefers to be called, recently spoke with our associate producer, Eric Douglas, about her parents' story.
11: Uh, My daddy was a veteran of World War I. My mother was a a school teacher. My daddy had been discharged from the service, and he was walking down this old dirt country road and passed by the schoolhouse and my mother who was the teacher there, uh, they were having recess and this soldier caught her eye. And he was singing a song, It's a Long Way from Tipperary. It's a long way to
16: Tipperary, it's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweet- Girl I
11: know. And he went on down the road and she ran as far as she could in the schoolyard and hopped up on a log or a stump and watched him until she, until he walked out of sight. I think, they, I think they were just attracted to each other immediately. My mom was a little fluffy. She was a little on the fluffy side. And... Um, she loved to cook, and actually, she was the backbone of the couple because I've seen her help my daddy uh, do things that most men did. I've seen her shoe her horses, pick up their big hind legs, and nail a horseshoe to their hoof, and then trim it down. She just was she just was an all around woman. She was. She wasn't masculine. She was, she was feminine, but she worked hard. She could do it just about anything any man around could do.
7: But, yeah, and she was fairly young. She was a school teacher, but she was, what, 17, 18 when she uh, started the school?
11: Uh, probably about 18 years ago. You could go to the county seat and take a test, a written test, and, uh, you know, if it was passed, they would uh, grant you a teaching certificate. Because in the little one-room country schools, you had grades one through eight.
7: Did you go to a one-room schoolhouse
8: too?
11: The school that I was raised in was called the Canterbury School. It was the one my daddy had uh, gone to the Board of Education. And there was a lot of children that lived back in those hollers then. And they needed a school. So they built a school. My daddy gave them... uh, uh, about an acre or two of ground for the school, with the condition that if it were ever abandoned, the the land would revert back to his farm, which it did.
7: What's fascinating about this book, and and is is that you do have such detail that historians can read this and learn from it to understand what life was like 102 years ago, 1918, 1919. Yep. Uh, you know, the, just the way they, they cooked meals and they, uh, uh, all the work that they did around the farm just to survive.
11: Well, we girls, uh, when we moved, to, when we lived on, on the farm on the mountain, we had to work like boys. We, we raised fields of corn because we had a, our corn ground into cornmeal, we had wheat fields, we had our wheat ground into flour. And uh, we we would go to uh, my daddy would cut timber. We had some uh, boundaries of virgin timber, and he would cut timber. It was just the way we lived. It's just it was the times that that I grew up in, and the area being raised. You know, having lived in a little little town and then going back to a mountain with no utilities or anything like that, it it, uh, it it makes you think, and it makes you appreciate what you do have.
0: Again, that's Nellie Canterbury, who wrote down her family's story in a book called The Visit. After their interview, Eric asked Canterbury to read a passage from her book. She chose a scene near the end of her parents' love story.
11: Uh, My mother's in the hospital, and uh, she's not doing very well, and I'm there with my father. I called him Poppy, Papa. Papa, let's, let's sit out in the hall and talk a while. I, I would get a nurse to stay with Mama. I just couldn't bear for him to be there when she drew her last breath. I heard the loud labored sound of her breathing. The intervals between each breath became longer and longer and then no more. The quiet became so loud and Papa suddenly realized the love of his life. It's sweet, sweet Annabelle was gone. calm. The heart-wrenching sound that came from deep inside his being echoes in my mind to this day.
0: Canterbury's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews, were married 56 years. They both died in 1977. I love that story and how it shows the strength and vulnerability in Appalachian families. Many families build their connections over food and the regular gathering over meals. A few weeks ago, I visited with a high school classmate, a former coworker at the Roanoke Times. Her name is Lindsay Nair, and she's written at length about foodways across Appalachia. Lindsay and I were sitting around an outdoor fire. Socially distanced and outside like that partly reminded me of old high school parties, but also of how nice it is to chat with friends, something most of us haven't had much chance to do lately. I brought along my recorder and microphone so I could ask Lindsay about some of the food traditions she's written about, and ones that she still carries on herself. So tell me who you are first.
12: I'm Lindsay Nair. I live in Daleville, Virginia, from Allegheny County. My grandma, we called her Jerry. Her name was Marjorie. Um, She was actually from Ohio, and my grandfather was from Rockbridge County. Virginia she learned to cook for him I think like she probably would have been a good cook anyway but she learned to cook all the southern things for him she actually made chitlins and um, they had a garden they would always be making greens and stuff like that we would come in their house sometimes and we'd be immediately hit by this disgusting smell and they would have Limburger cheese and onion raw onion sandwiches going and it's like you could smell it before you even got upstairs. <laughs> and they loved it. <laughs> Nasty to me. <laughs> when I was writing about food for the Roanoke Times, I did a story and invited people to send in thoughts and things on their f- favorite Christmas treats. And this lady from far southwest Virginia wrote about oysters. She was an older lady. And oysters are a thing in my family at Christmas, too. Like my family always did fried oysters on uh, Christmas morning. And I know a lot of families do oyster stew on Christmas Eve or Christmas. But this lady told me that they would actually have oysters shipped in barrels on the train to to far southwest Virginia because people wanted them for Christmas. And she said they would just throw a handful of cornmeal into the barrel occasionally to feed the oysters. I thought that was so interesting to think about that image. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even realize that oysters ate cornmeal, but I thought that was such a cool story.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And the whole train thing, because it does make sense, because the train route goes across the state through Roanoke and straight down to southwestern Virginia.
12: Bringing people their Christmas oysters. Oh, Lord, you know, I love food, and I have ever since I was a kid. I love a good piece of country ham for breakfast uh, with eggs, and I used to remember thinking that smelled weird when it cooked when I was a kid too, but it's just so delicious. Fudge. My grandma made beautiful fudge, and I, for some reason, cannot replicate it. I always seem to screw it up for some reason. I think it's one of those recipes that, as my grandma said, you have to hold your mouth right while you're making it. <laughs> my, my grandma always had a fruitcake around. She'd bake it you know, a while before Christmas, and then they'd put it in a tin and with cheesecloth around it and feed it, feed it booze. I think their favorite was Jim Beam, so they'd take Jimmy in there and <laughs> soak that thing. I never liked fruitcake as a kid, but now I think I would appreciate it now. I'd like to try a piece of that again as an adult. Don't you wish you could try things again as an adult that you didn't appreciate as a kid? Yeah,
0: because that's why I talked, that's come out of this, how picky I was as a kid. Yeah. Like, I didn't like pecans, I didn't like walnuts, and that, like, cuts off so many culinary worlds. Mm-hmm. Especially for cooking in our part of the country
12: indeed. Now one thing I do remember my grandma made that everybody loved was this jello salad and she called it the name of it is Darn Good Salad and it was just like lemon jello and cool whip and cream cheese mixed together with grated carrot and crushed pineapples and it has I think it has marshmallows like melted into the mix too and then you pour it all in like a jelly roll pan and it's this kind of flat cut it in squares that was the most delicious stuff to have on the side with like turkey and everything. It's just a nice kind of light alternative to cranberry sauce, I guess.
0: Do you uh, do you make jelly salads now?
12: I make that one. That's the only one I do. Uh, one thing I do do that my grandma did was homemade cranberry sauce. And I like to make that with orange zest. And even if you put a little Grand Marnier in it, that's some good stuff.
2: <laughs> Although it's that.
12: not quite as good as the stuff that comes out of a can with jelly, the jellied stuff. <laughs>
0: Again, that was Lindsay Nair, former Roanoke Times food writer. Hey, and if you'd like to hear more stories about food, check out the show we did back in December. We heard from many of you about the holiday food traditions your family has kept alive over the years. We posted a link on our website, wvpublic.org. There, you can also find all our recent shows. We're excited for the new year, and new opportunities to share stories from throughout Appalachia. Got a story you think we should know about? Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org or find us on Twitter at inappalachia. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Wyatt, Dinosaur Burps, Anna and Elizabeth, and Kaya Cater. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Inappalachia. Appalachia. You can also send us an email at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.